Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon. On this week's Fordham Conversations, Director of the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at Fordham Law, Thane Rosenbaum, speaks with former New York governor, political commentator, and CNN host, Elliot Spitzer. Welcome, Elliot. You know, well, thank you. we live in a Corson culture. Everybody knows that everything now is determined by sound bites and tweets and shouting. And we don't really live in a culture, especially when it comes to political commentary, where we're used to people that know the facts and have insights and are men and women of actual substance. And I guess the question is, when CNN first came to you, did they say, will you be the Einstein of CNN, you know, the sheriff well, no, of Wall Street? What did they you think? You want to know they, what I really said? What did they think they were getting? Well, what I said to them was, are you joking? And uh, I think you can imagine why. I, I said, for real. And uh, I also said, and, and now what I said to them after, and their cameras here, I probably should hesitate. And you know, the deputy general counsel is here, so I shouldn't give away my negotiating position. But they, they, I said, you're going to pay me to do a TV show. And they said, yes. And I thought to myself, oh, I talk for free. Usually I walk down the street and I talk. I mean, I, I, I can't stop talking. They're going to pay me to do something I would. So I thought this is a good gig. And, uh, you know, I'm enjoying it. I hope folks out there are as well. But it, it's, it's an opportunity, as you said, to try to have a more thoughtful conversation with longer segments, drilling down. I don't mean literally drilling the way we did in that interview, but drilling on t tough issues with smart people with whom you will disagree. And that is the intersection that we're aspiring to. It is not getting those whose views are identical to ours, which would be sort of a boring, one-dimensional conversation. And, and sometimes it, it really works. And it's more substance-driven. It's not a soundbite show. Th that is correct. And it's not a yelling well, show. The, 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 and I almost made a huge mistake right now. I, I have been referring to our guests as witnesses. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and, 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 our, and our conversations with them as cross-examinations. Right, and right. when I get home, my <laughs> wife says, Elliot, you've got to understand, this is not a courtroom. <laughs> but, but the only thing I was going to say is our guests may feel they're only given time for a soundbite, we actually, I'm being taught to give them more space to, to answer. So it, it's a slow learning curve. Um, you don't have to, you should, you should feel comfortable with us, we're, right? We're all among friends. Oh, the, the, the folks here are fine. It's the yeah. cameras in the back. That well, what, I, what I'm saying is, you know, we are, in fact, in the Time Warner building, so what's the risk? Uh, are no, you no, no, happy? that's when you're at greatest risk. You're, my, my, my boss is listening. Right, well. That's, that's the moment of great risk. Here you go. Are you happy with this gig at CNN? No, it's spectacular. And, and all facetiousness aside, the opportunity to spend an hour each evening or late afternoon if we tape as we occasionally do, having a conversation this afternoon with Barney Frank, for instance, who, with whom ideologically, obviously, I'm rather closely aligned, but a smart conversation, and, and you ask Barney Frank to discuss issues of Wall Street or, or the, the issue of the START Treaty or the issue of uh, you know, any issue that is pressing on our domestic agenda, what should the president do in the context of the, of the midterm elections, and you have a very smart, insightful conversation, and it has been great fun. Even Dinesh, with whom obviously I disagreed, I mean, I thought, thought his book was a little bit out there and, and sort of tried to understand or pretended to understand the psyche of the president based upon no foundation whatsoever. But having conversations with people <laughs> like that it is both entertaining and informative, and uh, I learn a, a fair bit from it, and hopefully the audience will occasionally as well. Well, speaking about conversations, you know, you've you've been a prosecutor and an attorney general and a governor. Right. People normally ask you questions. Mm -hmm. This is new for you. Is this a right. very different skill set of asking the questions rather than answering them? Yes, it requires listening sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, it, it is different. And I've now come to appreciate it's actually a bit easier to answer questions in a context of being a guest on a show or even give a speech where you have 
a linear argument that, that one wants to make than to sit at a table to try to craft a conversation that will have a rhythm to it, that draw an audience in, give a guest or multiple guests a chance to be heard, to present their views before you pounce and before you sort of go after them. It requires a much greater sensitivity to what the larger conversation is about. And it's an acquired talent, for me at least. I hope I'm acquiring it. There are others who are natural to it. We had Dick Cavett on the show uh, a few evenings ago who is just oozes charm and a mellifluous quality about the conversation and, and a wit that is just so disarming. And, and both Kathleen and I, I think sat there and listened to him and saw and understood immediately why this was one of the great hosts and conversationalists of all time. Just effortlessly, he pulled you in and very quickly he became the host of the show. Right. <laughs> and so there are people who have that, or Charlie Rose, who, who can sit and ask questions and look so thoughtful. And uh, so, so there are others to whom it is born naturally, others of us trying to learn it, but it is, it, it's fun and challenging. You've been a crusading activist attorney general. Uh, now you're a hard-hitting political commentator. Uh, people who've been our guests for the forum for years know that we're always interested in the depictions of lawyers in the mm -hmm. broader culture. Right. <clears throat> lawyers are perceived, and you to some extent as well, sort of muscular, mm -hmm. uh, hard-hitting uh, we know of lawyers that are bulldogs, hired guns, mm -hmm. sharks, right? We're describing them this way. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair estimate of, of all lawyers in a way? Do you think it's necessary for lawyers to present that image? Is that something on some level that even describes you and even in the way you're describing well, this saying, you know, when I even do Parker Spitzer, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a prosecutor who's framing the issue while we're well, having it. Let me say this, and I, I don't pretend to be an extraordinarily or even moderately talented lawyer. I've had some successes primarily because of good fortune and having had great colleagues, uh, some of whom are here tonight, Michelle Hirschman in particular, who's sitting in the front row, who was uh, first deputy for all eight years I was at the AG's office. Um, but I would say that the one area where I would disagree with that depiction is that the best lawyers have many dimensions to their personality. There are some lawyers for whom there is only one speed. And they can be extraordinarily effective at that, uh, but, but they only go in overdrive. And their demeanor in the courtroom is always that, that dogged, aggressive, jackhammer approach. The better lawyers, both in terms of how they would appeal to a jury, how they would handle an argument in front of a judge, and how they would handle in particular cross-examination where you need nuance much more often than you need uh, there are very few Perry Mason moments in real life, and therefore cross-examinations are often more nuanced. The best lawyers have many dimensions to their persona in the courtroom. And I think when I watch lawyers who, who bring that to the playing field, I'm in awe of them. Because I think, to a certain extent, I don't want to give too much away, but I think I am more linear in, in my persona in the courtroom, and others are much more facile at taking on different, uh, different approaches. So are you saying, maybe Michelle Hirschman can... Uh, Michelle, come up and join us. <laughs> is there a Dick Cavett among lawyers? Oh, sure. I mean, there is a oh, sure. style that... Oh, absolutely. We, there's there, a style there are that... Lawyers whom I've, against whom I've litigated who would have the jury in the palm of their hand, or his or her hand... And would never be described as dogged... Well, right? occasionally they might be. Right. But they would know how to modulate mm -hmm. the back and the forth. It's like a good speech. If, if you li listen to great orators, it is not always at one tempo. It is not always at one volume level. There, there's an ebb and a flow, peaks and valleys, and they're intentional. Good lawyers know that, and I've always believed, again, I'm not 
great trial lawyer, there's always one lawyer in the courtroom who dominates the court. And it's either the judge, the defense, or the prosecution. And usually the, the emotional center of the court is the winning party. Just because the jury gravitates, the jury looks to one person for guidance. Now, in theory, it should be the judge. I mean, that, that's, there'd be some sense of equilibrium. As a prosecutor, you always want it to, to be you. Often, it is the defense attorney, if the defense attorney is a very skilled advocate. And that is a consequence of knowing how to play the emotional strings. And it's a much more complicated issue than just being an overdrive. No, but you're, you're, look, you're right about the way movies portray lawyers. Right, right. So we're just saying there's more nuance and more multiple speeds. Right. That's right. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Today we're listening to a conversation between director of the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at Fordham Law, Thane Rosenbaum, and former New York governor and CNN host, Elliot Spitzer. I might surprise you with this question, but are you, do you have some sympathy for the Tea Party? And I'll, say, I'll tell you why. I mean, you know, look, these are people who are angry and mad as hell at federal spending and the abuses and excesses of Wall Street and the way in which the government had to come in and rescue the financial sector. And you became stunningly famous mm -hmm. having prosecuted the financial sector and held them accountable on, on a number of issues. Uh, and so on some level, you know, aren't, isn't the Tea Party a, a kind of creepy cousin of the sheriff of Wall Street? Um, <laughs> this answer may surprise you. The answer is absolutely yes. And, and I'll tell you what my frustration is. I, I'm completely sympathetic with the frustration, the anger, the anxiety, angst of, of an economy that has been destroyed by a set of policies beginning 30 years ago whose conclusion was eminently predictable. So I understand their ang anger. I'm sympathetic to them because I always think we want to be sympathetic to grassroots politics. And I actually believe this is grassroots politics. Huge influx of money from the top and, and you know, tentacles from places we don't like perhaps influencing it. But it really is genuine grassroots politics. And when you look at the outpouring of emotion in the midterm elections, that's a genuine statement by the public. We don't like what is happening. Now, my, fr my frustration is directed more at those within the Democratic Party who let the Tea Party emerge by letting the Democratic Party and the leadership of the Democratic Party become aligned both visibly and actually with the voices of the status quo. And, and I have written this and I will keep saying it. My frustration was that while I'm not a Luddite and I, and I think we needed to preserve the, the fiscal stability of our economy, of course. And so I wasn't sympathetic with those who voted against TARP, but I was absolutely fed up with the deal that was cut between Washington and the financial services sector. There got, we got nothing back in return for the bailout. And because that happened, and when you had an alignment of Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, as I've said before, the, the, the Obama financial team was continuity you can believe in. This was not change you can believe in. This was continuity you can believe in. Direct line from the Bush administration. And the consequence of that was that when unemployment crept up, when people saw the banks getting all the money, when they saw the bonuses coming uh, at Goldman, nearly identical to the $12.9 billion we gave them for the AIG credit default swap, something they never should have gotten, went straight out in bonuses, people said, you are not change. And therefore, when people looked for some political vehicle to carry the message of change, the Tea Party emerged. And Barack Obama, instead of sitting down, and the, the frustration was when he had the CEOs down to, to Washington, those who deigned to show up, the others were too busy, and, and which was another, you know, he shouldn't have tolerated that. 
just as a matter of, of just as he shouldn't tolerate the Republicans putting off their meeting with him. What, what he should have said was not, I am what stands between you and the pitchforks. He should have said, I'm holding the pitchfork. And here's the deal. We're bailing you out if you agree to the following restructuring of financial services. Because what we now have, and you know, there are many books that have been written that are extremely eloquent on this, is a more concentrated, more powerful financial services sector, fewer banks, not more, with a greater percentage of assets. They are now bigger than they were before. If they were too big to fail before, they're bigger now than before. All of this created the foundation for the Tea Party. So that's my frustration. <coughs> But there is yet an, that irony that for many years you prosecuted the excesses of Wall Street, mm -hmm. and at the same time, as, as a, both a governor and a private citizen, you probably would have supported the, the bank bailouts with, with well, conditions. No, no, but, but totally differently. And, 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 the, and, and, and certainly, uh, you know, that you would have played both, you would have seen that there's some conditions that are placed, but the principle would have been something no, you would no, have the, the, the principle was we cannot permit wholesale collapse. In other words, saying that the banks have failed us, which, which they did, saying that the banks lost all sensibility and, and sense of proportion in terms of how they were running themselves as institutions doesn't mean that it's better for society to have them fail. We needed to preserve the structure, but the deal should have been, fellas, here's what you will now be permitted to do, here's what you will not be permitted to do, and that, that deal should have been negotiated when they asked for the money. In other words, what happened was the Treasury Department and the Fed said, here's your blank check, take it and be well. And then six months later, when we began to discuss more seriously financial services reform, the banks suddenly showed up on the other side. Now, let's use the leverage you've got. Don't rearm your enemy and then say, now let's negotiate. And that is exactly what happened. And I think the, the, the most visible manifestation of this was when early on in this process, there was a vote on the Senate floor, a bill that would have permitted bankruptcy judges in the context of a bankruptcy litigation or, or reorganization of individuals to change, the, to, to reform the mortgage that the person had in an effort to permit the homeowner to hold on to the mortgage. So every people would have, some sense of equity would have emerged. And the banks weighed in against it and the White House weighed in against it. That, and I think it was Senator Durbin at that point uh, who came out with a statement, the banks still own Wall Street. This was after the bailout. Of, you know, and, and by the way, the bailout was not TARP. And, and you, you ran that little snip snip up there. The real value of the bailout is the transfer to the banks because of the interest rate you know, arbitrage they're benefiting from right now. Interest rates are at zero. Banks make money based on the, the, the differential between what they borrow at and what they lend at. And with interest rate, their cost of capital so low, they're now making a ton of money, which is fine if we had restructured the industry, which we didn't do. You prosecuted Wall Street and corporate greed and fraud um, while you were the Attorney General of the State of New York as the Sheriff of Wall Street. Did you think that the financial sector was simply too big to fail? I mean, when the Tea Party says, you know, let them fail. You know, they, they securitized loans. Uh, they engaged in derivatives trading. They dealt in toxic securities. Let them fail like anybody fails. Now, you're well, functioning as Attorney General and the Governor of New York. As somebody, you say, well, you know, actually, you know, could you explain to the Tea Party? Absolutely, we can't allow them to fail. He, you, you can do certain things, which are tantamount to letting them fail without having the sort of collateral damage throughout the entire economy. What you can do is insist on changes of leadership, which have not happened. And it's amazing if you look at the banks, how many bank CEOs have, actually, have been shifted? The one CEO who was removed was General Motors. 
right? Think about it. I mean, there has been no, in all of the bailouts, nobody said, wait a minute, guys, new leadership. You can demand that bonuses that were predicated, that were based upon what we now perceive to be the false accounting of the prior decade, be returned. Now, it was not false in the sense that they were making up numbers. It was false in the sense that the profits that were being booked were all based upon a bubble that the banks themselves had inflated. And so whether or not you think there is a legal cause of action, which I think there is, and, and not to get too granular in this, but what is now beginning to emerge is evidence relating to the information the banks had about the due diligence they had done on the mortgage loans that were being securitized. That's a mouthful. What it means is the banks and the credit departments knew these loans were bad. They still securitized it, still pushed this out into the economy, and then watched them collapse. But during the period before it collapsed, they made huge sums of money and took their bonuses out of that. That's not fair play. And so the deal should have been top 25 people, top, you know, pick your number, return all the bonuses you got in the last five, 10 years. Top leadership of these banks, go. So we will install a different leadership, change the pay structure, slim down what they do. Paul Volcker is the, 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 the great eminence who got it right. And it's too bad that he sort of, his voice began to be heard too late in the game, but he was the one whom people should have been paying attention to throughout this process. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Today we're listening to a conversation between Director of the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at Fordham Law, Thane Rosenbaum, and former New York governor, political commentator, and CNN host, Elliot Spitzer. Why didn't President Obama and uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner exact the kinds of concessions you're speaking of? Why you, were, you had a reputation of being tough on Wall Street. The Tea Party would say they were easy on Wall Street. They were. I mean, didn't, well, they, didn't they know they had all the leverage? Why wouldn't they have been more aggressive in saying there's a new sheriff in town? I, I think it goes back to something that I had surmised, probably many people had surmised, that, that was validated in, in John Alter's wonderful book about the first year of the Obama administration, in which buried in it, I forget what page, he came, John, after spending a lot of time speaking to people, came to the conclusion that Tim Geithner didn't believe Wall Street needed to change. And that emotional pivot point, th that fork in the road is the critical question. If he, he, remember, t Tim, who is a wonderful guy, I'm not saying any of this to critique I, him as I, a person, but he had been at the New York Fed, the president of the New York Fed, the primary regulator in charge of all of this mm -hmm. as it emerged, as it built up. Now, put aside the fact, crazy as it sounds, that when he testified at his confirmation hearings, he said, I've never been a regulator which is completely crazy. He'd been the chief regulator of the banking system, and so for him to say, I've not been a regulator, says more about his understanding of the job, but he had <laughs> been there and built it up. Now, that tells you he didn't see this structure that he had built as being flawed. He saw individual decisions as being problematic, but not the structure itself. And I think, so, so their intellectual framework, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, who were clearly sort of saying to the president, Mr. President, here's how we see things going, and he embraced their view. They didn't believe change was needed. And if you look at the arc of Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank is initially proposed by the White House was nothing at all, absolutely plain vanilla, useless. It gained power over time because the, the voices out in the larger world started standing up and saying, this is not acceptable. And so, and the White House pushed back against a fair bit. But the Volcker rule is a classic example. It took Paul Volcker many, many months to get into the White House 
to finally say something structural needs to be done, Volcker Rule obviously being that piece of it that takes the, the proprietary trading uh, for, away from banks that have access to the Fed discount window, basically the banks that can use our money to gamble with. Right. They're saying gamble with your own money, but not if we're guaranteeing you and if we're not going to stand behind you. Is it too late to bring some justice to what people seem to see as the, the distortions and the mistakes of the federal government not exacting the kinds of concessions in return for all of these taxpayer uh, benefits? No, I, I don't think so. I, I think, look, I, I don't know what justice means in, in this context necessarily. You said I, you didn't want to get too granular, but you thought right. that there might actually be... No, I, I think there are cases to be right. made. I mean, I, I think I would be surprised if when these documents about the due diligence, some of which I've seen, because they, they have now, a few of them are now public because the FCIC, the, the Angelitas Commission, has uh, released some of them. Um, documents like that, and I have always believed when you really want to find out what's going on at a bank, go down into the bowels of the institution, go to the credit department. The, the, you know, that's where the people who are not getting huge bonuses actually gather the data, analyze the stuff that says, what is this loan, good or bad? And these documents tell you that the banks knew these loans were bad. So is it too late? No. I saw a headline the FDIC um, put out, I think, some sort of statement that there are a significant number of criminal investigations ongoing. So that there is, I still hope that there will be some element of, of justice uh, that, that results. Elliot, unfortunately, we actually didn't get a chance to receive the benefit of what New York State would have been with you as governor. For one term, I would like to think you would have been reelected. Um, First of all, during these last two years, during the financial crisis, during the difficulties in New York, was, was it crazy for you sitting on the sidelines, crazy making for you sitting these last two years saying, look, you know, put me in, coach. Uh, there are things I would do. I would, you know, was it, was it hard for you to sit back given the state that you love and well, the, the people that you elected you that you weren't able to... Sure, to really sure. help well, out at a time of true need. Look, sure, sure it was, but just, just you know, continue a bad metaphor. I had benched myself, so it was um, it, it was hard at many many levels. Just as it's harder, I think, for anybody who cares about these issues, about the state, about uh, what, what is happening to our economy, what, the, the sorts of structural problems that are there that we wanted to address in uh, from Albany, which is a difficult environment to in, in which to sort of promote change under the best of circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, I guess what I would say is that, that there is an awful lot to be done, and it gets harder and harder every day. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the sort of forces that align against change are very powerful. I'm not saying this in a conspiratorial way. It's the nature of society that, that you know, and, and I will cite to you a, a book that is intensely boring and difficult to read, but is one of the most important books I ever read, which is Manker Olson's The Rise and Decline of Nations, mm -hmm. which talks about how special interest groups of all shapes, sizes, and forms align and create barriers to change just because it's, it's like a heart that has you know, fat building up in the arteries or you know, whatever, the, the valves or whatever they're called. I mean, it's just a very hard thing to overcome the institutional pressure. So yes, I was frustrated. I was uh, at wit's end, but so it was. Can you help us with a highlight reel that we would not have seen? What would, could you give us what, for two years, that you would have liked to have achieved, what you think sure. you could have done, that well, holes that you saw that you would have filled? Let, let me not say, gee, here's what I would have done, because who, who knows? I mean, and, and it's very hard. We had done certain things that, that sort of got lost in, in, in the haze that I think mattered. 
But I can tell you what I think should be done. Whether or not we would have done it almost is irrelevant. What I think needs to be done and it, it is, first and foremost, our K-12 educational system and our higher system of, of public higher ed must be improved. Um, that, that is the, what has always differentiated New York City and, and New York State, the SUNY system in particular, is it a, an amazing asset who, whose value to the future of the state, both in terms of producing those who live here, those who work here, and, and our, of course our K-12 system, must be better. Mm -hmm. And that is a state effort. That's, we always think of K-12 as being city-run and we have mayoral control. So much of the money comes from the state that the, the state has to be a partner. The article today about class size, for instance, was instructive. That, that bargain that was referred to in the New York Times about class size reductions was a consequence of the dramatic increase in state funding to the city mm -hmm. that came after the campaign for fiscal mm -hmm. equity litigation. And when we significantly increased to the tune of billions of dollars uh, state funding for city education, it came with something we called a contract for excellence that required these things. Those things matter. Teacher improvement. So education is one. A second piece of it is infrastructure. And, and that's why I was so disheartened. Um, just one small example of it. The, the, the decision by Governor Christie not to build the, the third tunnel strikes me as such a short-sighted decision. And, and again, I don't know what the numbers look like yesterday or today or the day before, but it's almost akin to deciding not to build the Erie Canal. And, of course, we all know, you know the historical consequences of those great, great infrastructure decisions. You must build out the infrastructure that permits the city to move forward. Mm -hmm. There is, of course, the entire domain of, of process reforms that are required in Albany um, that, that take on a whole separate track. But if you had to sort of list your priorities, it would be education, and infrastructure to a certain extent. Now, healthcare, if you remember, we had an enormous battle about Medicaid financing mm -hmm. because that was the key to New York State's budget. New York State's budget was being consumed by a Medicaid system that, you know, I've, the numbers have slipped from memory, but roughly a third of the state budget, twice per capita here in New York State than the national average for outcomes that were nowhere near what they should have been, and we were just losing billions and billions of dollars a year that should have been either returned to the taxpayer or shifted into these other areas. So multiple fronts to deal with, but th those were the primary uh, areas of focus. Can you tell us, would you tell us whether Governor Patterson had reached out to you for advice? No, look, I'm, 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 I, I wouldn't, so I won't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you were governor for too short a time, and yet, ironically, now you're much more famous. Is there well, something interesting about the culture in that we live that that actually happened and is true? Um, well, there are different ways. There's fame, there's infamy, there's celebrity. They're all different things and bring different uh, ups and upsides, downsides. Um, you know, as listening to your introduction, you said my life has never been dull. Dull looks pretty good sometimes. Um, <laughs> so, uh, there. Look, this is the nature of the human psyche. And it, my sense is it's always been like this, and it's not going to change. And so uh, you enter the shark tank knowing what you're dealing with. When you resigned as governor, either immediately or shortly thereafter, did you consider what would be next? Well, certainly you consider what's next, and uh, not in terms of a TV show. You just right. say, okay, what matters? Try to focus on what matters and uh, pay attention to it. And you can't do a whole lot more than that. It's, you know, look, I, I'm not saying anything I haven't said before. I've seen peaks and valleys 
in my life. The peaks are at some level a lot higher than what most people have the joy and benefit. It's measured in some ways of, of enjoying. Mm -hmm. And the valleys have been deeper than probably what many people go mm -hmm. through. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And you just kind of work your way through. Was it a deeply reflective period? If that wasn't, I don't know what would be. <laughs> Was it a reflective period unlike anything you'd ever experienced? Is this sure. something that just... Sure. Just the yeah. time of finding out who Elliot yeah. Spitzer yeah. was. Kinda, yeah. <clears throat> Another son of New York, although I'm not sure whether he was born here, but he was certainly uh, very much identified with the jazz age, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You may recall, or mm -hmm. some of you may recall, the more literary among us, that uh, Fitzgerald said that there, <clears throat> there are no second acts in American lives. Right. Um, it's not true for you. Ooh. <laughs> you know, that's not I, true for you. I, I, I think Gerald got you wrong. Well, you know, I think that is bizarrely that is one of his quotations. People, one of the few that people usually cite as one of the remarkably few intellectual misstatements on his part. Right. So, look, I'm not saying he's wrong about about me, but I'm just saying it, it, one of the great things about our society is that there sometimes are. Right, and I think we tend to root for those people who come back. Yeah. We, we root for people on the way up, we root for them to fall, and then we root for them to Return. come back. It's sort of, uh, I haven't quite figured this out yet, but it's... Uh... <laughs> Where there's a strong strain of redemption in the American spirit. Right. That maybe, we, maybe that's it. We really... Maybe that's it. You've been listening to excerpts from a conversation between director of the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society at Fordham Law, Thane Rosenbaum, and former New York governor, political commentator, and CNN host, Elliot Spitzer. To find out more, visit the website forumonlawcultureandsociety.org. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.